Nature Works podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Welcome to Nature Works podcast. In this episode, I'm the one being interviewed in advance of this month's Blue Earth Summit where I will be speaking on the main stage about taking a systems approach to restoring the natural world. My talk is labelled Microbes, Mangroves and Environmental Monitoring. Yes, three M's and a fourth being me. Now, if you enjoy this episode and others, please share it with like-minded folks who actually give a crap about the natural world. NatureWorks podcast is free of all sponsors and advertising, and we aim to provide the honest and unbiased insights into how we can help protect, restore, and come on, we need to do this, regenerate the natural world. Hi, Mike. It's lovely to have you on the pod today. Hi, Laura. It's lovely to be here, I think. And did you go for a morning surf? Um, I didn't go for a morning surf because I've just had my uh, guests here for the last three and a half weeks and um, I just laid in they left last night so I laid in bed appreciating not having to get up and make breakfast for six people um, I'm not sure I would appreciate three weeks of making of breakfast, making for, breakfast people. for people that exactly. sounds fairly laborious <laughs> <laughs> it, it was yeah but I will be going surfing uh, first thing tomorrow morning on Saturday so it's, uh, it's, nice. not, it's not all bad and um, and tell us why you're currently in Bali. Yeah, so there's a multitude of reasons for being in Bali. One, obviously, is the location. And as somebody who loves the outdoors and surfs, the fact that it's one of the most, it may be even one of the best places in the world for, for surfing. Um, I have two young sons, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. And Bali's the sort of place where they can actually grow up in another culture and incredibly rich and often very certainly by western standards are, are very strange and i mean that in a in a very um complimentary way the culture here is so alien compared to western culture materialism isn't isn't the key factor people are deeply entrenched in their spiritual and their community beliefs and karma pretty much runs all the decision making for balinese people and so you just have this incredibly caring compassionate and uh, very authentic uh, uh, communities around us um, so th those are some of the reasons but from a perspective that relates to Blue Earth Summit and uh, environmentalism uh, Bali actually is a very special place I mean it's it's become a victim of its own success from a tourism perspective uh, pre-covid there were 20 million people a year coming in here tourists all using all of the facilities and water and you know creating a whole lot of garbage and everything else and um so it because partly because of covid but it was happening before the governor here governor costa who's a brilliant man who's incredibly focused on both progress technologically but also keeping balinese values and one of those values is the protection of the natural assets here the land and the ocean and so the government here is is making a very um, large, convincing push to turn the whole island organic in the next three to four years. 
So they want to do away with all petrochemical, non-organic fertilizers, urea, nitrogen fixers, pesticides. So agriculturally, they want to turn this into a bit of a utopia um, and also bring back a lot of the biodiversity that's been lost during the so-called Green Revolution, which is when the big chemical companies came in and sold everyone on the idea of, of um, higher crop yields at the expense of killing off all of the insect life. Um, and so at my company that I work at, um, the head of all of the business development activities, we have a very large stake in organic regenerative agriculture. And so we run an organic farm down here and we use it not to grow crops that we're going to sell. It's, a, it's actually a non-for-profit non, program but we uh, test so we test organic fertilizers we test novel approaches we test different plants for water filtration because the water here is so uh, heavily polluted and so my a lot of my time even though i work in the office behind a computer for most of my day doing business development a lot of my time is also spent on a farm here understanding how we can restore polluted depleted rice paddy fields and bring them back to full life as well as supporting biodiversity and cleaning the waters and and really just giving the land a chance to come back restore and be like it was 50 years ago before tourism swept through so what's the time frame did you mention did you say earlier that it was four years um for the organic yeah for well the i, I mean i shouldn't speak on behalf of governor costa he, he can do that himself he's a brilliant man but um, he wants the whole island to be organic by 2025. Now, I think that was scuppered by COVID. Uh, he had already, mm. I think they've done 24,000 hectares of agriculture land where they've converted it from from chemical farming over to organic farming. The wonderful thing about that is not only the biodiversity and the cleaning up of the chemicals in the waterways and cleaner, healthier organic food, but what's been the real shock to everyone has been a 20 percent increase in their rice yields so uh, it's nice, a win okay. it's a win-win-win so yeah there's another hundred i think i'm right in saying 120,000 hectares of land that is going to be converted into organic in the next uh two three four years i guess from a tourin tourism uh perspective that will completely shift the nature of people who want to visit the island because if the project is successful by 2025 um i'm sure you'll have people coming over to bali thinking wow this is an amazing setup what skills or knowledge can i take from this and bring back to my my own land my own country yeah i think that is the case um and more broadly i know that the 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 Balinese people are probably a little bit fed up of cheap package holiday type tourists who come in and have little respect for their culture and little respect for their land. Now, of course, there's a flip side to that is that people need to eat and people need to be able to feed their families and, and COVID shutting down all tourism here for the best part of two years was a stark reminder just how reliant everyone is here the Balinese people and also all of the foreigners who have businesses here how reliant they are on that influx of tourism whether it's cheap package holidays or whether it's high-end luxury but I think most Balinese people certainly who I speak to and I work with and we employ a lot of Balinese people here um, would be uh, the first to say that they would prefer a different quality of visitors people who really respect the place and who are not just coming in to you know get drunk on 
six seven nights a week and and stay in cheap hotels and so i think ecotourism is going to play a huge part in bali's future it already does to a degree but imagine if you were told that you could come to one of the most beautiful islands in the world with some of the friendliest people in the world and the whole island was organic and therefore all of the rice you're eating and all of the vegetables you're eating and all of the fruits and everything and the water is is cleaner and i think that that vision is one that's going to compel many many people to come here who would not previously have come here bali is known for all of its beauty but it's also known for its garbage problems and its polluted roads mm. and that's those are other um those are the other two uh, approaches that are being heavily worked on uh, which is cleaning up the garbage and cleaning up the pollution here so i you know i live here because i think it's going to be something of a an, orga- an organic utopia within the next 10 years and does the population of the island currently dictate you know what's happening i mean as part of this project um that's going to be finishing in 2025 what happens if if the population you know increases dramatically um does the the new system or infrastructure that's been put in place take into account that hundreds if not more if if not thousands more people would want to come and live live in bali well no so the the government actually is one for you to consider they're actually putting something called a nomad visa um in place uh, my understanding is that they've already agreed to the structure of it and the nomad visa enables people who work online or have overseas jobs to come in live here and live here and work tax free for 5 years and so what oh yeah that sounds like the best deal ever yeah and that's the point <laughs> that's the point of it and thailand's just also thailand are a bit ahead they have provided a nomad visa for 10 years um a lot of people have already picked up on that and that's a 5% tax in thailand and look the the idea here is that you're going to attract people to come in live here work here and spend money here and and those are longer term people and i think that makes a lot of sense because if you live here and you feel like you have a stake in the place you're going to treat it with a lot more respect than if you're just visiting for a week the again uh, and i'm not going to pick any particular n- nation but there are uh, certainly m- a few million australians who come in here and many of those people obviously come in in respect the 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 environment and respect the um the culture but uh you know you get a lot of and brits as well and a lot of drunk young dudes who come here and they just want to make the most of partying for a week those are not the people who are going to put uh, time and effort or attention into ensuring that the place becomes cleaner and more environmentally sound and that there's a sustainability to it so i think a it 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 brings in by having a nomad visa you bring in lots of money for accommodation and restaurants and people are spending but you also get a better quality of of um attitude because the longer you're going to stay here the more you're going to want it to become uh, a a better place to live uh, i certainly know that from the many dozens of people that i know here um who are all really focused these are people who are not in the environmental or conservation you know business but they will regularly turn up to do garbage pickups and they're regularly making sure that um you know the the their communities are focused on keeping the place clean and 
and um, taking sustainable practices very seriously. Interesting. I'm going to so look that up after this pod. Um, okay, so uh, linking back to, or not linking back, but um, you mentioned that Bali has a garbage problem. And is that a problem that Bali has created? Or is that because first world countries are depositing their rubbish mm. <laughs> around the beauty of Bali? Um, no, there's no, there's definitely no import of garbage. I don't, I think the there's no way that the governor and the provincial government here would ever allow that. Um, they're way too proud and a way too smart a people. I do, from what I understand, some of the other islands in Indonesia, and you've got 17,500 islands in Indonesia, in the archipelago. Um, from what I understand, they have accepted garbage from other countries in the past. Um, I, I think that's probably uh, been stopped, certainly... President Jocko Wee here would um, would have stopped that, I think, right in saying. Um, but Bali has its own problems because obviously 20 million tourists coming in and coming in for a few weeks at a time, they're using throwaway plastics, you know, small sachets. There's another problem here as well, and it's a, an economical, sorry, an economically driven one. And that is that most um, Indonesians, they it's a very uh, low medium wage across Indonesia. And so they will often, and this is from my experience of employing and working with Indonesian people, they will often buy just single throwaway packages because it's cheaper. They're not going into the supermarket and buying a $10 shampoo in a tub because they just don't have the money to be buying $10 shampoo. So they'll buy a 25 cent shampoo or a strip of them. And then those are throwaway plastics. The other problem here in barley that you have is that traditionally only up to probably 40 or 50 years ago when you know, there wasn't plastic here and so a household would throw all of its waste at the back of the house into the stream it's called this part of the subak system which is what feeds all of the rice paddies here now 40 or 50 years ago throwing all of your garbage into that stream was absolutely fine because it was completely 100 percent organic it would have washed down the streams and it would have broken down and it, a lot of it would have just been eaten by fish because it would have been all organic waste. And there's a lot of carp-like fish in the, those streams. Uh, so there's, a, there's like a continuation of that practice in many places where the garbage is just thrown in the stream and they don't really consider that the garbage quality uh, has changed. It's plastic. It's not going to get broken down. And so... Uh, one of the flip sides of, uh, I guess, one of the um, the hurdles for Balinese people is that they're so incredibly dedicated to their spiritual beliefs that you do ceremonies maybe three, four times a day. This is where they're prayer, praying and they're giving offerings. And that may be to temples, it may be to certain trees, it may be to all of the very important spiritual places for them. And what has happened over the last 20, 30 years is that those offerings used to be foods and flowers and tobacco and soy sauce and they would be placed in natural um, banana leaves and the likes now they're in plastic because of the convenience and so you get n just tens of thousands of these offerings that are out in the streets and all these different places that have plastic in them and that's become uh, you know that's that's one of the the, the problems the other is that uh, that bali's just not really caught up on its garbage disposal in that 
the systems in place are not quite sophisticated enough to handle the actual amount. Um, one of the, again, one of the things that the government here is doing is looking at waste to energy and how they can take all of that waste and turn it into clean energy. So, um, you know, they're, they're develop it's a developing country and um, it, as I said before, it's a victim of its own success from a tourist perspective, but they are making great, great efforts to solve the problem. And I think the waters and the streams and the ocean here five years from now will be completely different. They'll be clean and they'll be a delight to swim in or surf. And what and what is um what's Laconic's role in um both the rice paddy fields and and the garbage problem? Mm. Yeah, so Laconic is the company that I work in. Um I'm one of the original uh founders of the business activities from regenerative agriculture to environmental intelligence which is uh, what we're probably the best in the world at right now um, and laconic so we only work in in sectors that are good for the environment good for humanity we're a real esg company none of we don't there's no greenwashing you know we're 100 percent transparent company everything we do is open to be scrutinized um, and here and in Bali, we're obviously, like I said, working on regenerative agriculture practices, but we're also advising on a lot of the uh, big problems, the waste to energy, for instance. Um, and the, the real big one that we're going to be working here on next year is carbon credits, is carbon accounting, and ensuring that moving forward that Bali actually has a uh, really strong position in protecting its both its... Uh, it's carbon sequestration areas in the water. So these are these would be seaweed beds, these would be coral reefs, as well as it's land-based. So all of its forests to be protected, those that many of them already are, um, and to ensure that the carbon that's already in those forests is quantified uh, so that we know what's in there and it isn't going to be released because of the protection. And then when we take this organic regenerative approach to agriculture what that actually does is it causes a a net sequestration of co2 rather than an actual expulsion of it in in chemical farming when you plow the land or till the land and when you use urea and you use fertilizers and herbicides and pesticides of the chemical form like a company like monsanto there is no monsanto anymore but you know Bayer uh, that they produce that causes a response in the microbes in the soil that actually gets them to release CO2 it's a stress response ultimately they become under attack and in that stress response they release a whole host of chemicals CO2 being one of them when you actually take a restorative and regenerative approach where you're in many cases actually spraying bacteria on the land and you're not tilling so deeply and you're using what's called cover crops so there's always roots in the in the soil uh, maybe you're using grazing as well that causes a net sequestration and the uh, i think the most accurate stats in farming are there's something that about 30 percent of of the world's uh, greenhouse gases come from uh, agriculture practices and so if we can if we can change those practices we can actually instead of being a net releaser and adding to the problem we can actually uh, sequester uh, and cause a massive create a massive carbon sink whilst also creating healthier foods for people
So it's a win-win again. So lots of fancy words there. <laughs> oh, sorry. Which, um, one, which ones? I can, give you, <laughs> I can give you a glossary of terms, if you like. So um, if we go right back to the beginning, what uh, does ESG stand for and what, what role does it play? Oh, well, it's a term that really has been hijacked by anyone who wants to make money from looking good. Uh, not, <laughs> but uh, well, it's true because there's so much BS out there. Um, so it stands for environment, environmental social governance. And so this is looking at business activities that are beneficial to the environment, to society, and they are governed by... In, it is intended to be uh, very strict protocols and rules. In our case, uh, at Laconic, um, everything we do is environmentally sound and socially sound. We wouldn't sacrifice one for the other. In here, for instance, I can tell you very clearly, we, we pay double the rates to our farmers working on our land that would be paid to, and it may even be more than double, but is at least double um, what other farmers are being paid or what they're making on the land around here. Um, and that is also making them working in a in on fields that have no chemicals that are likely going to cause them cancer, like Bayer's chemicals do. Um, uh, they have great working conditions. Um, everything we do has a benefit to local communities and the broader society, as well as to the environment. So ESG is environmental social governance. The problem with ESG is that so many big companies... Uh, they put it on their proverbial, maybe they even literal business cards or in their marketing, and it acts as a way to do greenwashing. So they'll talk about doing environmental social governance, but actually, this is like big oil companies who are making, let's say, $50 billion in profit, putting $100 million into solar or renewables or hydrogen. It's total BS. But, you know, those companies run on, run to make profits, and so... From a business perspective, it's understandable, but good luck having a business if there's if it's scorched earth and we don't have an environment for the business to be sustained from in twenty or thirty years. So ESG is a and uh, yeah is a um, is a way of uh, stating your intent to do good in the world as a business. And so if you're not if you're not working um, in ESG or you're not working uh, in a business that's adopting sustainable principles or or bs principles as you like to put them where would you start learning about like these kind of concepts and topics um it's so sorry so i understand the question you're saying if you're if you're a business that wants to become more esg or and not do bs or do you mean so just if a, if a listener if, wants to understand it yeah if a listener wants to understand it like for me for instance um you know, I've only learned about ESG since working for Blue Earth. Yep. And even then, opinions are really polarized on it, mm. which which must mean that it's quite important to learn about. But even so, sometimes I can find it really overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, look, I, the reason that opinions are polarized on it is because it's not because of the principle of it. In principle, it's a fantastic idea. But it's the fact that companies will use will hijack it to make themselves look good this is this is greenwashing right this is hedge funds who say hey we 
we're a hedge fund who invests in sustainable development or we invest in organic cotton and that's one percent of their total fund and the other 99 percent is arms and oil and gas and and cheap crappy clothes that no one needs that children have been making in third world countries uh, so it's used as a shield to greenwash and and that's the difficult part of it is how do you actually cut through all of the uh, potential fake use of the current es need for esg um, activities and and governance and it's not going to be governments that impose that you know they're yeah, it, it, the 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 need for this is too big, and there's too many companies, and there's always just ways around it. So, um, I think you can probably create your own measures for understanding whether you're working with ethical, genuinely ethical companies, and that's that's by looking at how transparent they are. So, for instance, I have a mild obsession with the clothing company Patagonia. And that's partly because I'm a surfer and a climber and they make some of the best clothing in the world. But I, I, I hate shopping. Like shopping to me, if you want to take me through a day of hell, you take me shopping. I would rather lay on a bed of ants covered in honey than go shopping. <laughs> However, if I happen to be accidentally walking down a high street because I got lost and I see a Patagonia store, I'm probably going to jump in there. Now, I'm compelled not to buy clothes because most of the time I don't buy anything. I'm compelled by the fact that it's a company that and, and I don't work for Patagonia, by the way. I have actually done some training for them in in uh, 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 in California when I lived there. But I don't work for them. I don't have anything to do with them. I'm not sponsored by them or any of that. But uh, what I love about them, and there are other brands just like them, but not many, is the complete and utter transparency. So when they've made mistakes, like some years ago, they found out that their merino wool in their clothes was coming from sheep that had been really ill-treated. And in many cases, they'd, they'd been slaughtered or, or all sorts of terrible activities. And, and they were the first to fess up. As soon as they found out, they didn't try hiding it. They fessed up. You know, they, they did an actual campaign. And they lost a lot of customers because of it. For me, it just reinforced my, my uh, commitment to a company like that, that they would actually fess up to their mistakes. And the founder, Yvonne Schoenard, and I'm, and I'm creating a loop here for your question about where do you start when you're overwhelmed with all this stuff. Founder Even Schoenard, who's a climber and a, and a, and a surfer, he, he loathed, in his own words, you know, he loathes the term businessman. He became an unintentional businessman, and that company has uh, now exists really to support the planet. And the reason I say that is because uh, somebody like him isn't worried about profits. Uh, they're more concerned about the value and, the, and the, what they're putting out into the world that's beneficial. If you want to learn about ESG, by the way, before it was even coined, the term was coined, um, I would read Let My People Go Surfing, which is Yvonne Schoenard's book on how to run a business. Uh, it's For me, I've read it three times. It actually is probably the turning point for me going from running a consulting company and being a coach, which I did for many years, to actually deciding that I wanted to work in, uh, in a, a company that had an environmental impact and a big impact. So... Um, all of that is to say that if you, you know, to cut through all of the, the BS, the, the question for me is how transparent are they? How much of it is left hidden? How much of it is, that, is there that I can't figure out from? Yeah, there's a fancy website and there's a this and there's a that. Like, we say to anyone who wants to 
work with us. Come down to Bali or come to our offices in Chicago. Uh, come to Bali and see our farmers. Come and see the work we're doing here. Come and see the land that we're restoring. Come and see our relationships. Come and see what we do, where we put our own money into what we're doing here. Speak to our farmers when we're not around. Ask them whether they love the work that they're doing. See the non-chemical uh, inputs that we use. Go to Chicago. Meet the team there. You know, see the deep commitment that everyone has. And so I'm not trying to sell our business here, but I'm saying that's the kind of level that we should expect from companies if they're going to claim that they're doing good in the world. Be transparent. Show us what it is that you're really, really doing. Don't be hiding your arms deals behind your 1% of organic cotton investment because it makes you look good. God, I went on a rant there, didn't I? <laughs> very interesting rant. A very Sorry. interesting rant. And then my second question <laughs> was... Um, in the history of agriculture, um, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know much about it, and I certainly don't know much about the the science of um, soil. But um, why were uh, chemical products like brought into the farming mm -hmm. chain or, or or the farming agricultural cycle in the first place? Well, I'm no farm or agricultural historian, for one. I mean, I I joke about being a farmer myself. You know, I walk around our farm. Uh, asking for things to be done on the farm with our team here uh, but the real farmers who are out there seven or eight hours a day are, are not in this podcast room right now but I do have a deep interest in agriculture uh, because I have two children and I I suspect that agriculture will be one of the major factors in the years ahead, uh, ahead that will either ruin the planet or give us a chance to actually restore and protect it um if you look at the degradation of the Amazon rainforest, much of it is for agriculture purposes, of course. It's chopping trees down, it's chopping old-growth forests so that you can grow soybeans. And those soybeans are being grown, probably genetically modified, so that they can feed cattle, so that people in rich Western countries can eat you know, beef, or maybe just some of the filth that you, know, that you buy in fast-food burger chains that i'm not going to mention the name of um so but to answer your question around the uh the chemical inputs and why they've been implemented is because well one so from a pesticide perspective you know it's much easier just to, to spray tens of thousands of acres with a killer agent that kills all the bugs than it is to try and encourage predator bugs that will keep a natural balance um, you're going to make in the short term at least a lot more money by using chemical herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers because you'll get bigger yields at the start now those yields of course are going to be uh, uh, deeply um, penetrated with those chemicals so <laughs> uh, down here where uh, the rice paddy fields are sprayed with fertilizers and urea and and uh, pesticides. Many of the farmers here don't eat their own rice, they sell it. And they use that money to buy cheaper rice that comes from up in the mountains where none of the chemicals are being used. So they'll, <laughs> you know, they, they know that what they're producing isn't really edible, they don't want to feed it to their kids. And so um, the the core reason for all of these chemicals is cash, it's money. And it's not just the money of the chemical the agricultural uh, fertilizer and pesticide companies 
because they're making billions of dollars, and they certainly are now with the increased prices of fertilizers. But it's uh, overall yields for farmers. And look, it's hard to be a farmer. Farmers live, most farmers live on the edge when it comes to um, money. You know, it's very, very difficult to make money as a farmer. And so if somebody comes along and promises you a magic potion that is going to increase your yields, great, you're probably going to take it. The problem is it, it only lasts over a couple of decades. You can look at all of the data in farming to see that you need more and more of those chemicals to increase or just sustain the yields when you take an organic regenerative approach actually the land and this thing called nature which has been there's got us this far uh, it keeps restoring and so you don't have to keep spending money and in fact we have a terrible business model because the fertilizers that we use over a period of time probably about four or five years even on land that's been pretty much destroyed you just don't and you just don't need it anymore after four or five years because you've created such a rich soil microbial environment environment that it just does it itself and that's where we want to get to we don't want farmers dependent on any kind of fertilizers we want them to be able to go back to a state a, a, a state of being able to use the land effectively so that it keeps regenerating and restoring itself then they make more money of course and everyone's happy <laughs> that was amazing <laughs> and such a good answer to my very simple question <laughs> so thank you for that <laughs> I, can get, I can give you a shorter answers similar... if, if you want I, I mean <laughs> <laughs> no it's super interesting um will you be talking about that at, at blue earth at blue earth i will be giving a presentation on uh, microbes mangroves and environmental monitoring and uh, the reason I'm doing that is because there is no single approach that's going to get us out of the uh, mess that we're in from the climate change perspective, from pollution, from the loss of biodiversity. Uh, there's no single approach. And I can tell you that microbes, mangroves and environmental monitoring isn't going to get us out of it, but it's going to make a big impact. Um, and so I'm going to be talking about about how we need to take a systems approach to a complex problem. You cannot take a simplified idea or a simplified attitude to something as complex as natural systems collapsing. You can't just look at honeybees and say, by restoring honeybees, we're going to uh, regenerate you know, vast amounts of uh, of pollinating needed areas of of meadows uh, you're going to have to look at it much more um, intimately and intricately than just single approaches the problem is is that most businesses and most governments want single very simple um, solutions they want to be able to take it off the shelf in a can and you just can't do that it's like covid you know you get hit by a viral pandemic i mean it, everyone should have known one was coming anyone with any sense because they have happened before therefore they will happen again and we'll get another one as well who knows when but the race to just put masks on people and isolate them and vaccinate them great all of those approaches may have benefit but they were seen as these almost singular very simple uh, effects and as we've seen from the data there's a it's had a huge impact on people's what's known as mental health and well-being way beyond what covid could have had for certain demographics and i'm not particularly focusing on this but 
there's a rush in the panic to create very simple solutions. And that's what governments around, all around the world and companies are, are trying to do with the climate change problem. They're rushing to, and panicking to go, this one, one approach is going to do it. Um, and you can't just take a single simple approach to a complex situation. What you actually have to do is test. You have to do safe to fail tests in any complex situation. So you have to test, 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 test with lots of different approaches. Um, so I, that's what I'm going to be talking about at Blue Earth Summit. That's another long answer, isn't I it? I am very, I am looking forward to that. Um, linking that to, I guess, um, resilience. I mean, COVID kind of showed us that we are resilient to some degree. <laughs> Did it? Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I might disagree with that one. I think the opposite okay. is true. Well, I mean, I think that... Reactive, um, maybe. Yes, I think, I think, well, I think it depends where you live in the world. Um, but you have a book, uh, Resilience by Design, that I was um, having a read of the other day. And I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, what resilience have we shown in the last 10 years? And what kind of resilience do we need to cultivate um, when it comes to all the systematic issues that we're facing with? That we're, that we're faced with in the next 10 years. Um, and do you think that it needs to be kind of resilience that's cultivated at a grassroots level and, you know, feeds up? Or do you think it's a resilience that needs to come from um, the top of hierarchies in government and then, and then feeds down? Hmm. Um, well, I wasn't expecting you to mention resilience, to be honest. It's like a, that's a, another world to me. So I, I used to train resilience programs to large organizations all over the world. And that book, Resilience by Design, which I co-authored with my superb academic uh, former partner, Ian Snape. Yeah, um, as you you probably see in there, there's no one single solution. Uh, this thing, resilience, again, it's like governments trying to take solutions off a shelf. It means many things to many different people. Um, but to answer, so I can answer your question more effectively, when you say uh, uh, how, I think you said, how resilient have we been? Who, who are you? meaning specifically do you mean the human race generally or or i'd like yeah i think i think we'll go we'll go broad here go broad well look at, uh, across across the planet uh different groups of people have very different resilience strategies so uh some people might turn to faith to find uh better resilience you know um and uh, let's define what resilience is it's uh it's and even my definition is you know imposed really by me but the the cleanest definition i can provide is the ability to respond resourcefully to pressure and inputs from the environment so um a lot of people say that environments are stressful there's no such thing as a stressful environment there might be a bi biologically stressful environment like being in the desert with no water um but uh, typically people these days say that their jobs are stressful or people stress them out or, um, you know, COVID has been stressful. And look, that that's all a cause-effect relationship. That actually, what that does by accepting that kind of pattern is uh, is saying that I have no ability to choose my own response to the world. And so um, I actually, you, you can't really answer it generally about resilience in humans except to say that we're clearly very resilient generally because we have got this far over many hundreds of thousands of years of 
um, you know, droughts and famines and wars and plagues and everything else. So we're clearly a resilient species. And I think what makes us resilient is our ability to um, communicate and to come up with clever, novel, resourceful solutions to problems. Um, but we do that best because, without getting too technical, we have a part of our brain, the prefrontal frontal cortex, it's so well developed in humans compared to other species that enables us to create things out of nothing meaning that we might be sat on the floor and all of a sudden I imagine what a chair could look like and I go oh I've got this idea and I somehow communicate that through my grunts and whistles to my uh, other cavemen friends and we make a chair and now we're not sitting on the ground getting damp backsides which has now improved the quality of life of us as cavemen. And so chairs become a thing, but the, cave, the chair didn't exist before. And now some, some animals have this ability, of course, birds that make nests and the likes, um, clearly have a way of perceiving and building, but nothing like humans. And then it's taking that ability and being able to communicate it, which has really made us the dominant species. Um, because by you and I being able to communicate a solution to something, even now, I mean, look at us communicating across the world in this way but previously even just being able to communicate across small distances gave us an advantage and that will continue to be the advantage when it comes to being a resilient species if we don't get caught up in our own sense of dominion i think the biggest problem we're facing now if we we're to bring all this back to resilience and climate change and protecting this planet that we're all on is that we have to, and I say have to, we have to figure out how to get over this ego trip that we're having where we think that we are in control of this planet and it's ours to use as we please. You know, we're just one species, albeit the most intelligent, albeit the most successful, albeit the most predatorial, albeit the most resourceful. Um, but yeah, we need to get off of this ego thing. And I think religion and capitalism have probably been two of the biggest problems where we've been elevated above the rest of species in a very in a very egotistical arrogant way and that's what's getting us into the mess that we're in now um and i hope that you know future generations won't suffer it quite so badly but i'm not quite sure that we have a, enough solutions yet to ensure that future generations won't continue repeating the same errors Anyway, that was probably more of a question than <laughs> a answer as well than you expected, wasn't it? <laughs> and on a much lighter note, could you tell us what your blue thread is, the thing that ties you to the cause? My blue thread? Was I meant to, ha was I meant to have been told about this question beforehand? Because I don't know what blue thread is. What do you mean? Explain that um, to me. So kind of, so what, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What it, My what children like, get me okay, out of bed in the morning. The enthusiasm <laughs> or all the problems that you need to find solutions to. Yeah. Okay. So, well, what gets me out of bed in the morning is actually the birds. I live in a, an open Balinese house that 5am um, the birds are going absolutely insane. So they wake me up as do the neighbor, neighborhood cockerels. Um, but what drives me, what motivates me is actually... Again, it's, I mean, it's very selfish. It's altru, you know, I don't know if there is such a thing as altruism. I think everyone who does acts of, of 
goodness for others is probably getting so much from it that it's very difficult to say that we do anything purely altruistically. But um, the nearest I can get to that is that my reason for doing all of this from, you know, I'd like to be a part of this agricultural renaissance and uh, I'm lucky to be in a company with a CEO and a board and investors who believe in doing what's right in the world. Um, and so I'm doing that for my kids. I cannot, I can't face seeing myself as an old man and saying to my kids, sorry, I was lazy and I sat by and let this catastrophe unfold. And so, especially when I know that there are brilliant people out there who just sometimes need rallying and bringing together and then giving support and brilliant people who are much more, way smarter than I am, who have solutions. And so for me, it's finding those people and applying them to the problems and resourcing them so that when I'm an old man, I can be a little less guilty when my children ask me what I did to make sure that the planet stayed blue and green and healthy. I like that. I like that blue thread. Well, thank you very much for coming on our pod today. And I look forward to hearing your talk next month. See you next month. Thanks, Laura. 